encouraged by Tom Yawkey, the unassuming millionaire who owns the ball club and ardently adores this big-nosed Polish kid. In 1961, someone will have to replace the retiring Williams, and Yawkey thinks Carl's the one. It goes okay. Years pass. Boston managers come and go like magazines, one a month. But the fatherly Yawkey remains, and his unwavering faith in his left fielder holds constant. Meanwhile, the Red Sox sign other local ethnic boys with overly syllabic names. The ever-dwindling fans at Fenway shorten the names to paint them on placards, to fit them in their mouths and make them familiar. Yastrzemski becomes Yaz. Tony Conigliaro, a brash and beautiful Boston boy who homers in his first game at Fenway, opening day, 1964, is promptly dubbed Tony C. The last initial becomes necessary to distinguish him from hockey's Tony Esposito or... Tony O. There's also the silent Americo Petroselli, a shortstop with delicate features. To fans, he's just Rico. To teammates, he's Petro. When he arrives, he's nothing but a melancholy benchwarmer, too shook up to be very reliable, until Dick Williams is named Boston's manager. He senses that all Petro needs is confidence, and Williams supplies it. The year is 1967. Carl glances up and around the field. It dawns on him. This is a new ball club. Something's happened. Nobody from his rookie season remains, though his teammates still dress in the same flannels, the button-front jerseys, and belt-loop trousers. The cap with the fancy red B on the bill, their chests saying Boston in plain block capital letters, just as they had when Ted Williams was a rookie. The view from the Fenway grass and bleachers is the same. Indeed, the same as it's been since the stadium was built in 1912. But this is a new ball club, and with a spectacularly invigorated Rico batting behind Tony C., who in turn is batting behind Yaz, the dependably droopy-dreary Red Sox engineer a dramatic turnaround. In 1966, they ended the season 26 games out, in ninth place. Now, with Dick Williams at the helm, they beat up the league for the first time in decades. The cheering of baseball in Boston is heard once more. Old fans flock back. New fans descend. During the pennant stretch, Ted Williams happens to catch a game on TV. He professes deep concern about the way Tony C. hugs the plate. He gets a message through to Conigliaro. Back off, you're going to get beaned. Charming, gorgeous, popular, healthy, strong, and young. Tony laughs off Ted's advice. Instead, on a Friday evening in Boston, August 18th, he leans way in. He's watching for a slider on the outside corner. He doesn't see the high inside fastball. You rarely see the pitch that comes at your head. At the last second, Tony flinches. His half-shell batting helmet flips off. Carl, standing on the top step of the dugout, hears a deafening sound, a sickening sound. Tony feels the baseball penetrate his skull. He imagines it coming out the other side. 
Rico runs over from the on-deck circle. Tony flails in the dirt beside home plate, barely conscious and bleeding from the ears, nose, and mouth. It's going to be all right, Rico cries desperately. Tony's jaw is visibly dislocated, the cheek smashed. Immediate hemorrhaging inflates his left eye into a black balloon. You're going to be fine. Conigliaro is rushed to the hospital. In his stead, a pinch runner is put on first. Rico triples the man home, and the Red Sox win. But everyone's thinking of Conigliaro and wondering if he'll live through the night. Tony does survive, to the surprise and relief of physicians and fans alike, but takes time to recover from his near-death experience on the playing field. He's ravaged by terrible headaches. Boston's 1967 impossible dream season drifts on without him. Carl becomes the only Boston player besides Williams to win the Triple Crown. The Red Sox claim the American League pennant in baseball's closest race and tightest finish ever. But with Conigliaro's bad depth perception, Boston must play the World Series without a cleanup hitter. Even so, seven games are required before the richly talented St. Louis Cardinals can claim superiority. New England prays for Tony C.'s return. He's not just the hometown hero, the local high school star living out big league dreams. Fenway's close wall and left perfectly complements Tony's punishing right-handed swing. He's Boston's most natural source of power. But as hard as it is for Tony C. to step back into a batter's box, it's harder still for him to see and hit the ball. Blind spots cloud his vision. He guesses a lot on location and speed. He studies pitchers, learns to read their tendencies. He manages, occasionally, to get lucky. He clouts sixty round-trippers from 1969 to 71. But far more often, he swings at a pitch and misses by a foot. He makes no excuses, reveals no weakness, claims perfect vision. He's too proud to tell the truth. All he's ever wanted to do is play baseball, but he can't judge fly balls in right field. He can no longer gauge the rotation on a major league pitch. After endless frustrations and setbacks, in 1971, at age 26, the former golden boy announces his retirement. He tries this and that. He sings at bars. He travels. He opens a nightclub on the Atlantic shore. He's at loose ends. In 1972 and again in 1974, his old team seems about to win a pennant, but without Conigliaro's clutch hitting, the Red Sox fall short. He fidgets restlessly, haunted by mirrors, viewing in them the reflection of a ruined romance, shattered dreams, a man destined until recently to be one of the all-time greats. Whenever he thinks about baseball, it makes him sick. His look changes, the smiles more tentative, the hair shaggier, the sideburns long and wide. The boyish features harden. The chocolate-brown eyes develop dark bags. Crags and furrows appear. In October of 1974, he snaps on the television, and there's the Dodgers ace, Andy Messersmith, pitching in the World Series. Tony can't shake the feeling that he could hit this guy. 
His body screams for a second chance, but Tony worries he's too old. He's been away too long. He doesn't want to look undignified, a child who won't grow up. He's 30 now. A friend reminds him that Ruth hit two-thirds of his home runs after turning 30, and Ted Williams, well, he went away for the duration of World War II and came back fine. Tony decides to attempt another comeback. His eye seems improved. His vision is nearly normal. Once more, he doggedly pursues the lost love of his life. He's pure guts. His drive is relentless. He swings bats for months, heavy lead bats or weighted wooden ones in basements, in batting cages, against pitching machines or indulgent hurlers. The pitcher Tony saw, Andy Messersmith, is indeed great. Messersmith's twenty victories and six losses gave him the best one-loss percentage this year in the majors. And yet nobody in 1974, not Messersmith, not anybody, throws a baseball better than James Augustus Hunter. A droll country bumpkin with rock-star clothes, lengthy brown hair, and the nickname of Catfish. Nearly all of Hunter's victories are complete games. A considerable number are shutouts. He gives up fewer earned runs than anyone else in his league. He isn't overpowering. He just wins a lot. He never seems to wear out. For almost ten years, he's been throwing strikes on the corner of the plate without altering his motion, and when his overhand curve works right, it breaks twice, with the action of both a curve and a slider. Hunter and his team, the Athletics, are owned by a consummate skinflint and showman named... Charles O. Finley. When Finley first saw Hunt,